We are about to talk to a local celebrity and fierce fighter for children and families. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. What do you think is the most influential thing you did while on the bench? In various ways, express to individuals that appeared before me that they had worth, that their future could be different than the present, regardless of what division they were in, to give them hope. I will definitely say that I've seen that happen in her courtroom. I think it's incredible that you were able to give so many people that because so often you're in court and it's the finger wagging like you were talking before. And I understand kind of why that happens because there is some people respond to that. You do this or you don't and you kind of do it now or the worst is going to happen. And sometimes people do it because they're terrified that the worst is going to happen. But I think the way you did it is just so much more positive and healing and hopeful. Healing is is critical. Yeah. If people don't heal, then when life happens, they'll resort to the same bad solutions that they had in the past. Something that I've been struggling with lately is we want permanency, but we want real change, not like they're just checking off task lists, right? So I kind of feel like in order to get that real change in that short time span, we have to use everything we've got and we have to all engage, make use of every freaking minute to really try and get them to look at like why they're making these decisions and fix those problems instead of just trying to not make these decisions for the next couple of months so I can get my kids back. And then for the six months after I get my kids back, And I'm going to go back to doing everything that I was doing before. And I'm going to be back in the same position again. Um, Did you hear that thing about that thing? I I mean, I did. I've heard some things. I've heard some things, too. Do you want to find out? I do. Okay. All right. So (laughs) I may have heard something about Oprah with you. (laughs) Could you maybe uh, tell us about this Oprah Um, thing? I I was on Oprah in, I think in the early 90s, before I was a trauma-informed judge. As I said, I'd been on Nightline. I'd been on Oprah. I'd been on, I was on Montel Williams. Oh my God, I love Montel Williams. I was on Montel Williams and I had been on CNN on Cryer and Company. I'm thinking that the one with Oprah was about shame. I can still remember the exchange I had on Oprah with this other fellow. It was about, does shame work? And she had on the program individuals who had been shamed publicly and did it work. And at that time, I think it was Newsweek or somebody who had put a, somebody with a dunce cap on their cover and does shame work. At the time, I had a case that had received some publicity 
where a young man had been bullied by an older, bigger fellow. And there was an area where kids would take a shortcut and that would be the location where he would often be beat up or bullied. And he was helping somebody in the housing unit had said, would you help me empty out this closet? And he found a loaded gun on the top shelf. He and his friend that were emptying out this closet and they fired it a couple of times and like, well, and go stuck it in his pocket. Now he, the little guy was going to be protected from the big guy who was an athlete oh, that used mm-hmm. to bully him. Sure enough, on that back pathway, the kid mouthed off at him or whatever. And he shot him in the head. The bullet traveled around his head. Uh, around the brain, the skull, and he lived. Whoa. He was helicoptered out and he survived, but he had to go through tremendous rehab from being in one of those halos where they twirl you around in the hospital on the bed and then eventually get in a wheelchair and eventually you get in a walker. And he was a, a star athlete. Or at least a promising athlete. And this young man was being raised by a single mother. I was trying, not related to going to Oprah, but I would tell you the end of the story was he eventually was returned to his mother, who was doing everything that the doctors and the therapists had told her to do up until this point. She left the area because it was not positive for her son, moved to another part of the state. He was a very talented singer. He was no longer a risk to anybody, and he thrived as a singer in churches and things like that. I had wanted him to see what he had done by walking a mile in his shoes, so to speak. And I had ordered him to be in a wheelchair for like a week or 10 days, to be on a walker, just so he could understand what this young man was going to have to face. Literally in his shoes. Correctly. And so that had received some publicity. So that's how I ended up being invited to Oprah. But while I was waiting to go on, I was in a room with a fellow who was from California. The reason he was there was he didn't pay his child support. He was what isn't classically known as a deadbeat dad. And the mother of the children had taken out an ad in the local paper with his photograph saying he's a deadbeat dad. He doesn't pay his child support, shaming him publicly for not paying. And I did a lot of innovative child support to get people money and things like that. And so he's there telling me about his trip from California in the green room and how he couldn't smoke on that plane and it was driving him crazy. So I'm saying, really, how much do you smoke? What do you smoke? What do they cost? I'm getting info from him. Really? How many do you smoke a day or whatever? So by the time we go out on to Oprah and he is complaining that he didn't have the money, he couldn't pay his child Cigarettes support. Cigarettes are expensive. And I and by the way, I was very nice to him in the green room and talking to him. <laughs> and as I explained, I said, well, except that the only problem is you spend and I calculated how much he had spent and what percentage of his child support that represented. <laughs> He, you know, he could make other choices. Yeah. And he looked at me with horror. Like, <laughs> but it, but anyway, I thought we were friends. <laughs> we were great group so buddies. That, but that was the, the irony of it. I was there because of shaming. But, you know, does shaming work? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I didn't intend it for that young man to be shaming. I wanted it to be educational. Educational. But what, it wasn't kind of an ironic story. <laughs> but on Montel Williams, I was there because I'm thinking that one was responsibility of a parent. A judge had ordered a woman to be handcuffed to her child or something. It was running away. It wasn't me. <laughs> 
me. At any rate, I think they had been on. I wish someone would handcuff my four-year-old to me. That would relieve a lot of anxiety. <laughs> I do not want to be handcuffed to a runaway teen. <laughs> Montel and I had been on the Nightline one-hour program. That included a man who was a foreperson of Lorena Bobbitt. Oh, my oh, wow. Case. And ironically, it was the son of one of our prominent judges in Port Lauderdale, but he was up in Washington, D.C. area. And they had Alan Gershowitz was on and a professor who was a student of his who was at a, one of the law schools in the Washington, D.C. area. And they had the writer whose daughter was uh, mugged and murdered in, in New York City, Dominic Dunn. And I had, at that time, ordered a fellow into prison. And it's a case I've always regretted. I had a history done on him and he had been in the foster care system. He had been in the juvenile delinquency system. He'd been in residential drug treatment. He'd been in county court, county jail, and then state prison. And I foolishly told him, well, we're trying to see if there was a reason to mitigate downward because he scored to prison in adult court and he was in his 40s. And I said, we've given you every service that was available. None of them worked. So I'm going to sentence you to prison. I knew nothing about ACEs. Right. And had I known that just because he was in DJJ or in DCF as a child, there's no reason I had no reason to really believe that he'd gotten trauma based services. Right. Okay. Right. Certainly jailed and prison are not rehabilitative. And so I always regretted that that was what I had been known for in that case. That was long ago. So it became, you know, it was on the front page of the Pasco section of the St. Pete Times that I said, no, you've had all your chances. Basically, you're done. I'm on this nightline while we're talking about it was basically about is abuse an excuse, not shaming, but now is abuse an excuse. I was also simultaneously interviewing women in prison as part of Governor Child's Battered Women's Syndrome Clemency Review Panels on. We had, there were nine of us. I was the chair. I was the only judge. This was in like 91, 92. These were women who had pled or been convicted of murdering their mates. We'd only recently created a criminal rule of procedure called the Battered Women's Syndrome. And these women had been in prison long before that came along. And Florida was the second state to start looking at, wait a minute, maybe some people who are in prison didn't have some defenses taken into consideration. And so we were formatting how they should be, what questions we should be answering to give to the cabinet to consider. They couldn't get clemency unless they got a waiver of clemency Um, because they were still in prison. Okay. And so we devised what questions we wanted to ask. And I was working with psychologists, psychiatrists, forensic nurses, domestic violence providers, defense attorneys. And it was transformative for me to be spending these hours in prison with these women. And by the way, they all had been victims of child sex abuse before I knew that was an adverse childhood experience. It was because of what I would consider a bad decision on my part that I was asked to participate in this one hour program. I certainly gave them a different take than what was expected on is abuse an excuse. Well, you know, it depends. Depends. Yeah. But Montel Williams was on that. Sally Jesse Raphael was part of it because it was his oh part of the process. It just keeps getting better. I know. <laughs> but, you know, those talk shows, are they part of the problem? Right. Mm. And so that's why we're there. So as a result of that, Montel's office contacted me and wanted to know if I was going to be on his show. The woman who was there complaining bitterly about how bad her child was, I said, I'm sorry, was he raised on another planet? I thought he was raised by you. <laughs> 
So I was trying to shift responsibility yeah. from the child to the parent. Yeah. <laughs> Often people look at kids with behaviors really up to a certain age and sometimes even at any age, it's a result of what they've been taught. When my son goes to school and somebody's treating him a certain way, well, that's what that kid is learning at home, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Many years ago, I was asked by kind of one of the executive partners at the law firm that I worked at at the time in Chicago to work on this pro bono case. They were looking at re-reviewing his sentencing. And this partner asked me to look into this gentleman's history starting in childhood. I knew nothing about what I know now. Mm -hmm. And I've never connected it until I'm sitting here with you. But I realize now he basically said, go get all of his school records, go get all of his history, interview his family, just run wild, go do your thing. We ultimately went into court and argued why his sentence should be reduced. And it was all of these adverse childhood experiences. experiences. And thankfully, this judge heard us and did grant some leniency and his sentence was greatly reduced. It's been like 10 years. I never connected. That's what this attorney was having me do. (laughs) And the attorney probably didn't know it was adverse childhood experiences. Just let's get the history. Early intervention is key. Yeah. The sooner the better. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Speaking of the sooner the better, (laughs) can you tell us about Tepper Time? (laughs) The word sooner should not be used in the same sentence as Tepper Time. I'm sure that you have experienced temper time. It's a very bad, bad habit of trying to do too many things and running and not starting on time or in my personal life being somewhere on time. But it began long time ago. It was in about 1993, took over a case. A judge in Dade City had been recused on a civil case and I was new to the circuit bench and it was a big civil case. And the jury was with me for like three weeks. And so I'd say, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back at such and such a time. And a couple, 10 days, two weeks into it, they go, oh, by the way, judge, we've called it temper time because we never start back when you say we're going to start back. And it stuck. I mean, that was a very long time ago. <laughs> well, what I have been told makes sense based on my experience is that the reason temper time is a thing is because before you go into the courtroom, you read every single case before you. I do. I've been in other courtrooms and you can tell that the judge probably hasn't read the case, doesn't know the parties. I haven't had the opportunity to review the file. Every division, I read everything before I'm on the bench, usually late at night, the night before. I was told that uh, you might be able to tell us something about binders. I had binders in the courtroom. I still have hundreds of binders. I was going through them before I came today. (laughs) Um, Not hundreds, but I had wonderful interns. In fact, one of my interns is now a local attorney. Keely Caratinos began my first binders. I wanted to give information to people. And sometimes it might be in dependency court. Sometimes it might be in a domestic violence hearing, a family law hearing. And we gradually accumulated, you know, somebody's being referred to the batterer's intervention program. Technically, the clerk's office uh, by statute 
is required to provide that information, but I would have all the information they might need on a sheet of paper or somebody needs to call the hotline. I'd have that or there was a problem with an elderly person. We give the elderly care hotline. Somebody needs to get a meal. I'd give them the whichever church they could go to on a Sunday to get breakfast or where they could go um, to get a meal and maybe get some camaraderie and get some clothing, get their needs met. I had papers that covered equine therapy. Where was that available? Accelerated (laughs) resolution therapy for PTSD. Where was that available? We had everything. As I learned about it, I would give it to them. I have updated. Where are the AA meetings? What days do do they meet? Then eventually we started to divide it between ones that were family law related versus resources versus I had things on trauma. I'd, I'd give them the circle of security picture. There are now infographs that have become quite popular through the Harvard Developing Child and things like that. I, oh, I had links to internet sites of all of the best trauma resources. The infographs are, look like something like this. I would give out what are ACEs, the Robert Woods Johnson one on what are ACEs. Different things, you know, not necessarily this one, but different mm-hmm. things like that. I was ready to give to people to assist them. You have a need, let's find the solution. Here you go. We have talked a lot about the secondary trauma that we all get from being in the system. As foster parents, we experience that on a regular basis. But in the courtroom where all this emotional stuff is going on, there's got to be a little bit of extra stress being the one to make those calls. Mm -hmm. What is your self-care routine? How do you handle the secondary trauma? As I said, many years ago, I was overwhelmed. I was sitting in Newport Ritchie at the time. I felt like we're not doing enough. This isn't working. I'm not helping enough. And I actually use this again when I teach is I just saw the forest. I didn't see the trees. If we take a look at the trees, we can see they were broken and they've tried to heal and maybe they didn't heal right. How can we help them heal individually that tree? How can we nourish the soil to make them be all that they can be? Just changing my focus was tremendous in taking away so much of the stress. (laughs) Changing my docket. I try to impress on judges, you know, we're creatures of habit. The docus has always been said everything at nine, said everything at one thirty. That's very stressful. I have all these people waiting. And instead, it really helped me a great deal, for instance, to take away the stress by saying, when I said something ago, besides finding out who can make the afternoon versus the morning, how much time is this going to take? What do we have to cover? Will an hour be enough? Do we need 30 minutes? Okay, then let's set it that way. So then I wasn't worried about who am I keeping or then doing nothing because we've run out of time and that's not valuable. So that took away a great deal of stress. I always often question why the dependency system doesn't do certain dockets. The dockets Bad the way habits. civil courts do. Bad habits. Because we get time certain yep. for hearing. Our hearing, it's not a cattle call for lack of a better word. <laughs> it is a cattle call and I constantly stress to the judges that I teach we need time certain dockets. Yeah. <clears throat> let Why alone they let alone like... that people that have mental health problems are now being claustrophobically pushed oh together gosh. with a bunch of strangers. Right. And why can't and hearing de- each other's dependency. tales. Right. And why can't the dependency courts be on jacks or jaws or all of these systems that the courts have implemented to set hearings up for five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen well, minutes, just like the rest of the civil world. And works. for instance, that's why I also it was very stressful 
stressful, an emergency, an emergency, an emergency. And then my JA be looking around and then <laughs> coming to check with me. And that's why I had a time set every day that was always available for emergencies, emergencies that she See? could well, use. And let me tell you Very something smart. else about Judge Tepper. I know I've Uh-oh. been talking to you about her yes. since pretty much as long as I've known you. <laughs> but uh, if a teen is on the run and they call her, everything else gets put on pause. She will drop an entire courtroom of people to walk away. I mean, for that one kid, the way that she values her teens, I, I just I can't. There were multiple times where I was in her courtroom and she, she had to leave because there was a teen that had been on the run and they wouldn't talk to anybody but her. Mm. And she would stop everything for them. And one of those memorable phone calls was a youth who had been trafficked from a foster home, a group home, by one of the other foster kids and talked her into running. She was trafficked in Tampa. She was trafficked to Orlando. She was trafficked to the East Coast, all within three weeks period of time. Thank goodness that place she had been trafficked was busted. So she was rescued in that short period of time. I used to be very involved in teaching on human trafficking, and I would give out in my binders information (laughs) to youth, a card they could keep in their wallet or Mm. warning people about what could happen and what it would look like and who it could be. When we got her on the phone, she needed to be detoxed from the drugs they had been giving her. She goes, you were right. You were right. I didn't want to be right. Yeah, it's very important to take those calls. But in terms of more on the self-care, it helps if you have animals that are a positive influence. And we know they can be very important for healing, particularly, by the way, for men that have been victims of child sex abuse. But that's another bit of information. (laughs) Relaxation, whether it be by reading. I used to read a lot of books that seemed to be about the courts. And my brother pointed out to me, you don't get enough of this at work. And so that now I do lighthearted mysteries and things like that, that are really can make me laugh out loud or completely distract me. And of course, give me any British mystery on TV and I'm, <laughs> I'm on it. Those are good distractions That's, as well. Well, and I can relate to that because lately I've had a little bit of a heightened anxiety just from some fun foster parent stuff that has happened. I have noticed that TV shows that I normally enjoy were stressing me out, but they're all like the police shows yeah. or the Legal shows. A show that I always watch with my son is Blackish. We love it. It's funny. My husband's favorite. Oh, we love that show. Me and my son have been like refocused on spending more time watching that because we just laugh. It's so funny. And the shows that I normally enjoy, I'm just not enjoying lately because my anxiety has risen because of these crazy situations <laughs> in foster care. You don't want to watch TV that induces anxiety? I don't want to watch TV <laughs> that induces anxiety. When you watch SVU, like a lot of that crime. relates to a lot of what we see yeah. in dependency. So I can't, I can't watch that stuff right well, now. Well, there are certain authors I stopped reading because they were just too dark. Yeah. And I don't need dark. Yeah. It's like we get enough dark <laughs> with our kiddos. I've and- been re-watching with the kids Survivor because it's fun. Yeah. And, you know, I was so sick of watching whatever it is that is on TV that appeals to little kids today. I can't with some of those things. So I was like, hey, guys, what about Punky Brewster? So we, totally we were just talking went- about Punky Brewster. We both watched it with our kids. And we're like, maybe that's why we wanted to be foster parents. I didn't even recognize that she was in foster care. I didn't. But it must have brainwashed us. Oh, and I think like- it did. So Punky Brewster. Then we watched like the new Punky Brewster survival. Survivor. I mean, now it's past November 1st, so we're totally watching Christmas movies. <laughs> so what is one positive change that you would like to see in foster care in our state? They should implement icebreakers everywhere. 
I think that would be fantastic. That's amazing. I think that falls on the foster parent. Apparently, unless they were in your courtroom in which you implemented that. Well, Otherwise, the model for early childhood court had that, the safe babies court. What do you think our community can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care? Have you heard of the paravases? There is the adverse childhood experiences. There is adverse community environment. Adverse community environment, in essence, is the soil on which the tree grows. And that is where you lack social mobility. You lack access to services. You have poverty. You have high crime. If our community would, number one, become educated on what happens to people and why, instead of looking the other way when we see somebody that appears homeless, homeless. or on the side of the street to help them as we would if it was a dirty little kitten that was crying right. or a dog. We would see to their needs and recognize that they needed help. Of course, we want to prevent them from ending up in that homeless situation. That's mistakes or things that happened to them when they were younger. But our, if our community would become educated, and believe me, our community does some wonderful things, but we need everybody that's in government, local, county, and working in the court system, but our communities and our school to become educated in adverse childhood experiences, to continue to beef up availability of services locally, immediately. There is this assumption that, well, they can just take a bus. Well, I'm sorry, they've got a job. They can't read the bus schedule. Did I mention that? And P.S., they don't have the money or whatever, and they can't consistently get there. And who's going to take care of the kids we don't? Oh, childcare? Oh, that's right. What are we, the 48th from the top on quality Early childhood. We have a wonderful Pascal Hernando Early Childhood Coalition. They're fabulous. We need to be sure that they are fully supported. We need as a community to do anything we can to start early in early childhood. Have, whether it's employer-sponsored, government-sponsored, quality certified early childhood centers that are accessible. There's no reason we can't. I think our community needs to fund. I tried twice in, um, I think it was 90 and 92, to get the Children Child's Welfare Board, known as the Children's Services Council. Yes. Tried twice. Almost made it the first and really bombed the second. We need to do that again. That is, I think Hillsborough gets over $48 million off of people's property. Back in the early 90s, it was about an average of $25 a home would be added to your taxes to help children's needs. Pinellas County had the first child welfare board that became the model long afterwards of the Children's Services Council that became law in the late 1980s. That's where you're going to see opportunities and solutions for parts of the community in need that will help early instead of building more prisons. Yeah. In case like nobody's noticed. the problem noticed, before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So yeah. that's what we can do as a community. We got it. Um, the county commission had um, agreed to put it on the ballot for us twice. And we've talked, some of us, there's some mm. people that we know about doing it, but we were waiting for the right election and time frame. And mm. we hope to do it soon. That'd be great. So then we have to see if the county commission would vote to allow the registered voters of Pasco County to vote yay or nay on it. I just don't understand why we can't do that. It's such a small thing that could have such a big impact. And yeah. when you see in the other areas where that is working, it's... I mean, Leon I just County don't... passed it the last election cycle. And Palm Beach has it. And Hillsborough County. 
County has it. There are a number mm-hmm. of counties now, and it really makes a difference. Sounds like it would make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So I know that you are moving, so you're not necessarily going to be in our community long term. Considering this community or the community you're moving to, what are your goals to make positive change? And I feel so silly saying that. We ask everybody this question, and I feel like how could anybody ask more of you than what you've already done in our community and in child welfare? But yeah, I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you have any goals to continue making positive change? Continue teaching. As I've indicated, I've begun to teach lower, so to speak, earlier in the disciplines. I was very excited this year to uh, do a Zoom for the six different clinics at Stetson Law School. Very exciting for me to know that now lawyers that are going to graduate, they know about ACEs in their homeless clinic, in the public defender, the state attorney, the immigration, the civil veterans clinic. They know to reach out lower and lower, so to speak, not just to judges. We need to get them before they enter any part of the justice system that's going to touch the life of an individual who's going to end up in the system. And so I'll continue to do that. But I also need to write. I had done a national webinar January of last year. A professor from Berkeley Law School had seen it. And she reached out to me and she's doing a, an appellate pro bono for domestic violence injunctions. Nobody does that. They do the front line, but they don't yep. do the appeals. And she said, we need to be able to cite you in our briefs. You need to write something. <laughs> and I was also thinking like, you could definitely do CLEs. Well, and I have. I've published over the years in the Family Law Reporter, you know, different things, mm-hmm. but I'm not in any law review or anything like that. And it's been a while since I've done any CLEs. The Hillsborough County's had Dr. Dr. Graham and I come back many, many times and teach and gotten them CJEs and CLEs and CEUs. I have a lot of to-do lists and CLEs is one of them. And I would also love someday to be invited or to make a proposal to the Florida Bar to do a presentation at their annual meetings. But I also need to write something that could be just, you know, a guest column in a newspaper. I need to write a book. Yes, please. I just need to keep teaching. And I also want to continue to keep being involved in with youth. And so I hope that I can find the opportunity when I move to still be involved with youth. Well, me too. Um, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to thank you for coming. I'm sure you know that you are leaving behind a huge legacy and an impact that the impact that you've had on kids and families and foster parents and social workers and anybody that has worked with you is incredible. I know for me personally that I'm a different foster parent than I would have been if I hadn't started in your courtroom. I came in wanting to help. I want to help families. I want to help kids. But I never would have gotten the education that I did if my first case wasn't in your courtroom. Being a part of that was something special and I miss it. (laughs) But now that's the importance of beginning to teach and model because now you get to model and think of all the individuals you've been able to help from that. You know, if Dr. Graham hadn't taken me under her wing and taught me what she knew or Dr. Folletti wasn't so passionate about teaching others when the medical community could have cared less about his study, where would we be? So you just keep spreading the word. You have definitely impacted me here just today, there have been multiple times where I've had been very emotional or had tears in my eyes because some of the things you're saying are just incredible. And I can't wait to take it forward. And I feel like I am generally a very passionate person. (laughs) I can attest to this. (laughs) Um, But I feel like you have given me a new vigor and sitting here with you today. Well, it's been a joint effort. We've been feeding off of each other (laughs) and that, that matters. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Wow. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.